This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, Episode 74. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump in to today's interview. My guest today is Caroline Seniza Levine. Along with her husband, Caroline is the creator of Costa Rica Fire, a website about location-independent early retirement. Caroline spent the bulk of her career in New York City, where she worked and raised two kids and fired at the age of 46. She now divides her time between New York, Florida, and Costa Rica, and she manages, uh, I think, 10 rental properties and a consulting business at the same time. But it wasn't easy for her to get to this point because, as we'll talk about in today's episode, it took real convincing to get her husband on board with the idea of early retirement. So I invited Caroline onto the podcast today to talk about this experience and to share tips and advice for individuals interested in early retirement who may not be entirely aligned with their spouse on the idea. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us today to share your experiences and wisdom about financial independence and all the things related to getting one's spouse on board with early retirement. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Andrew. Um, I'd love to start just by learning a little bit, you know, about your career background, actually, even though I know you're sort of not working a, a, a traditional uh, corporate job anymore. Um, I was looking at like your LinkedIn, and I saw that, like you attended the Juilliard School pre college program for piano performance. And then you later did your undergraduate studies in uh, like the dual degree program at Columbia and the Manhattan School of Music, which is, you know, very impressive. And it's, I, I think typically, for students who I imagine are very serious about potentially pursuing a music career, was that your goal at the time? You know, by the time I got to college, I realized I wasn't going to be a performer, but I really enjoyed, honestly, doing a lot of different things. I have always really enjoyed the arts and I wanted to be very involved in it. And doing the the dual program enabled me to do that. And that was really all that it was for me was just being involved in, in music and majoring in it, but then also majoring in economics. And then as soon as I left college, I I had a pretty traditional job. We actually have the same career early on. We were both management consultants. So I was a strategy consultant, pretty typical type A, you know, long hours, volatile hours type of job. I did that for four years and then uh, moved into recruiting and HR. So I had a pretty traditional corporate background up until I was in my mid thirties. Got it. So is it fair to say then you knew pretty early on that you wanted to pursue a, like a more of a corporate career out of college? 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I had that upbringing where it was go to college, get a good job and save a lot of, you know, save for your retirement and retire at 60. So like, fire was not on my radar and, and doing a portfolio type of career, which is what I feel like I do now, where I take on a lot of just different projects that, that interest me, that was also not on my radar. So college was really where I felt like I could play and, oh, this is going to be my last chance to do, you know, some of the fun stuff like the arts and some of the serious stuff like go to school. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, talk to us a little bit about your path to fire. Uh, if I understand correctly, uh, and please correct if you know anything is um, incorrect here. But as I understand it correctly, you, you had two kids, you fired at 46. So uh, did you early retire after your kids were out of the house? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how we, we planned it. So my husband and I were lucky enough that we met in high school, which, you know, people can't, can't always say so we, we like, built our lives together, truly. So we dated throughout college. And as soon as we graduated, uh, lived together, got married, had our first kid. This is within two years of, of graduating college. And so we kind of lumped together a lot of the, the life stages early on. And we both had these, these, he was also a consultant. So we both had uh, jobs with good salaries, we're able to put money away. And and again, had that mindset around, we're going to do this for 40 years, and then we're going to, to retire. And it wasn't until I was in my, I would say early 30s, where I started to think about because at that point, we had two kids, and they were both in school. And even though at the time I was in HR at this point, which had a better schedule than management consulting, it's it's still, you know, it, corporate jobs of any kind of importance really are not conducive to, to, to flexible work. And so it was just so difficult. And I thought there's got to be a better way. And that's when I started just reading about what other people were doing and came upon this concept of fire. And for me, it was less about, oh, I'm going to just stop working entirely. But I was really attracted to this notion of I'm going to untether my financial dependent needs with my job, right? And so mm. that I could actually choose work just based on the enjoyment factor. And it brought me really back to my college days where I was just taking things for, for the joy of taking them, right? And taking a music degree even though I was not going to be a performer. Got it. Okay, so like what age did you start actually crystallizing the notion that, you know, like I actually want to pursue this decoupling of income from job? And what actions did you then take as a result? Um, and importantly, like how many years before actually uh, successfully decoupling those things from your corporate job did you start to make those lifestyle changes, if any? Yeah. So, so it was really in my early thirties that fire got on my radar up until then we were, you know, just establishing our careers. Uh, we had two small children and I don't even honestly remember anything else, you know, so there was this big blur of just trying to juggle that in New York city, which just the New York minute is very real, like a total 24 seven grind. So I didn't even start thinking about it till my early thirties. And the first move that we made was to buy a property that we 
we're going to use as a weekend home that we thought of as, hey, we could potentially retire here. Um, but we also could see it as because we didn't even think about buying in Manhattan because it was just so crazy. Um, we saw it potentially could be an income property or, or something. So we started to at least think about, can we start something that is separate from our jobs? That, that really came on our radar because we started thinking about fire and this notion of, oh, you don't need to have a job in order to have financial means. And so that process started um, in 2002. So let me just think. So that was, um, I just turned 30, you know, so it was, yeah, 31. So I was 31 and we, we kind of started that in place. But even then, it, the idea was to just get started. Like I was not thinking that we would be able to do it because I just saw how expensive New York was. I just did the math on two kids going to college. I mean, just the numbers seemed so big at the time. For me, I was just kind of like, let me just get started and, and kind of see where this goes. And then we bought two other rental properties, you know, five years after that. And then we were kind of like, okay, this, this seems like it could potentially work. And this is where my husband and I diverge here because I was always the one that was like, this is doable. Let's just get started. Let's think about real estate. There's got to be a better way to do this. And he was more of the, we have a really good thing here. I have a really great job. Things are really expensive. This is scary, right? I mean, just, you know, like we just temperamentally are, are different people. And so that was really where you saw the divergence because in the beginning, when we were both working type A jobs, you know, it was very easy to just to have a similar mindset about everything because we were both doing the same things, you know, maxing out our 401k, et cetera, et cetera. Got it. Yeah. So I, I want to sort of delve deep into uh, what some of those concerns were and how you ultimately kind of um, uh, got alignment. What were, you know, when it came down, when it comes down to brass tacks, what were the key objections or concerns that your husband had, you know, when it came to in taking the full plunge into, you know, wanting to pursue fire. Uh, and if you could just kind of take us back to that um, time, how did those conversations start? Yeah. So I will, I will be honest with you that I didn't, you know, wasn't one of these dramatic, you know, filmed for lifetime television where I said, let's pursue fire. And he said, no, honey, let's not. Right. Like it was, it was never that avert. It was more, um, you know, when, when I talked about when I talked about my interest in real estate, he was like, well, that seems like a good idea. And then, you know, nothing kind of happens because for him, it was it was like, wow, that seems like it could be a good idea, but kind of out there for somebody else. And so it would be up to me to 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 do things. And I think that's really just because he is very much a um, I don't know, he, it was very conservative in the sense of um, risk averse. I consider myself risk averse, but then when I stack it against my husband, he's more risk averse. So I don't consider myself a risk taker, but certainly compared to him, yes. And so I started thinking about, about real estate, whereas he would just kind of look at the, the number, like the, the price of real estate in Manhattan, right, which is where we were living and say, well, that seems too high. And, and then not kind of go, go the, well, what if we don't buy in Manhattan and perhaps do something else. Right. Um, so, so that was always up to me. 
when I could real estate possibly could be a thing that that was one. And then two, I started to think about if we only did it through real estate, it would one, it would take a really long time. And two, like we would just run out of hours in the day. I mean, there's just, we still had two young kids. We still had these two big jobs. And so there, there was this notion of we're going to have to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so really rather than me trying to convince him to do something different. I always just did the things that were different. So mm-hmm. I left my corporate job um, and I, you know, I, I just left it and I started a consulting business and I made the business <laughs> replace my corporate income and then exceed my corporate income. And then, then I could see in my, for my own eyes that yes, like this is, absolutely doable and that we both happen to have a set of skills that lent itself to consulting, which is a very low risk proposition because it's not like you're, you know, buying a factory and holding a lot of inventory, right? It really is something that you start without any capital. Once I on him to say, gosh, don't you want to leave your job now and potentially do what I'm doing so that one, he could untether his income from just one specific job and could really unlimit himself, but also too, so that uh, we could flex our schedule a little bit more, you know, potentially work on more real estate deals, et cetera, et cetera. But I left corporate by 36. He did not until he was 46. So you can see that this was 10 years talking about this, you know, tweaking things, changing things, then it wasn't that he was jumping on. Got it. There's a little bit of breakup, but I, I think I got that all of the gist of that. Um, but I was curious, like, so the, since given that there was a decade gap, uh, when you left the corporate world, did that? Did that? I guess. Um, what? What kind? Were there? Was there? A, were there difficult conversations that got forced in the open? I know you like started a consulting business and eventually replaced your salary. I'm assuming that didn't happen on day one. Um, how did that conversation go? Yeah. So what I will say is that where we were on board with each other was that we, for each other, supported the other person's decisions about their career, that he was not going to tell me, no, you need to go back to a corporate job. And I was not going to put my foot down and say, hey, you're you know, you're wasting away at a corporate job, you should go into entrepreneurship like me, right? So we respected each other's decisions. And, and so it was really more of, of chipping away at the, at the margins. It was convincing him to buy another property, to refinance a property, to then invest in another property. So we now have your correct 10 rentals. And we did that over time. So with the first one in 2005 and the most recent one in 2000, I want to say 17 or 18, uh, you know, so, so clearly it was, it was over a long period of time. We weren't, you know, we were buying and selling along the way. So it wasn't something where all of a sudden we went from zero to 10. And that's what I encourage for everybody. It's just kind of like, you need to find a way to make it work so that you and your spouse both feel like you have agency and autonomy uh, and are respected in the decision process. And I always felt like the onus was on me as 
as the risk taker to make an argument that the other person felt comfortable with that I felt like if I couldn't convince him, then perhaps the opportunity wasn't really that good. Hmm. Right. Otherwise, I, I would be able to make that sell so that I took that burden on myself to say, OK, it's not because he needs to change somehow. It's hmm. I, I started just getting creative about what my argument was. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is it also fair to say that, you know, all throughout you sh- had a shared philosophy on things like saving and investing and things like that? Maybe the early retirement part came later. But um, did you did you guys uh, have shared like sort of financial values throughout? We did. We did. I think where we differed was that I came from an economics, I I was an economics major, and I always had an interest in personal finance. So I was reading about it from day one. He did not. And so going to do his asset allocation or anything like that. And, And I was at your 401k and we're going to do 100%, you know, kind of growth orientation at this point because we're both young and he was like he was fine with that. I will say at the beginning he questioned a little bit like or you know like maybe spend a little bit more. He was never a spend thrift. I was lucky that way and that we both kind of have the same401k and perhaps we should spend some of it. And I got over that hump by, you know, really asking him to keep the numbers. And because he was a a computer person by by background and just like tinkering with things and like measuring things, this gave him something to measure. And so over time, he could see how the savings were building up and how the investments were compounding. And then and then he convinced himself, essentially. You know, I didn't have to to talk him through it. He was seeing it with his own eyes. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, I guess in that that um, that decade between when you left your job and then he ultimately left his job, uh, were there, I guess, key moments when you could see that shift in mindset happening? And was there a day on which uh, it was very clear that he he had switched over? Well, I wouldn't say that it was like a light switch over, right? I would say that that it was still deal by deal, you know, in terms of let's, let's invest in real estate. Um, I think he could just see that my business was was growing and was sustaining, right? And so that it seemed just less of a risk because at that mm-hmm. point, um, at the point that he left, I was you know, 10 years in business. Mm. And, and at the point that he was really starting to think about it, it was, I would say a good three years before he, he actually left his job that he had was already starting to think about it. And that's the difference between my husband and myself is that when I decide to do something, I'll just do it a lot faster. Mm. And, And that's always been the case with us. I mean, when he decided to buy a bike, it took him also three years to pick out the bike that he wanted to buy. I mean, he's just, he's just that way. And so that was just something that I knew it like I I could see in, in 
our discussions, you know, where, where we started to make plans around, okay, we're, we're not going to live in New York full time. So I knew that once he got his arms around, we're not living in New York full time. Obviously, he's not having this job because the job that he had was not a location independent job. And so I knew the fact that he was starting to dream about living in multiple locations that he had bought into leaving his job. And, and like I did with the 401k investing, I, I didn't then just, you know, press him around. So when are you leaving your job and what are you going to be doing? And let's, you know, I just kind of let him sit with it because I knew that when he gets an idea, it takes him like a little bit of time to wrap his arms around it. But I would say that he started thinking about the whole travel and, and living independently, you know, several years before he then actually made that break. Got it. Were you guys traveling and almost like even scouting out places where you would potentially sort of slow travel in or sort of live seasonally in that helped crystallize in a very tangible way? That Was there anything like that that kind of helped um, you know, accelerate or actually nudge that along? Yeah, no, absolutely. For sure. So when we, the first property that we bought in 2005 was in Asheville, North Carolina and Asheville, North Carolina was a place that, that I picked based on reading about it in, you know, personal finance articles, just about top 10 places to retire. And, and I had said to him, you know, let's buy something that eventually we can retire to, but for now we could rent out. And that was appealing to him. That was, you know, not so risky, right? Because we're not going to be living there. And so in order to do that, he did go to Asheville. He was the person that would, would scout things out. And so again, it was like giving him something to do that he actually really liked doing. He loves driving. He loves the, the whole travel. He loves the real estate scouting. So he did that and he went to Asheville. Um, the next place that we bought was Jacksonville. He also scouted out Jacksonville. And there were some places in between that we went to. So yes, it's true that that when I left my job till he left his job in those 10 years, we probably scouted out, I want to say anywhere from half a dozen to a dozen locations. Um, ultimately, we only ended up buying in in four different locations, one of which we divested entirely. But we looked at more than that. And I think it was in going to these places, we treated them as vacations, but also, you know, a little bit of business. We would couple them with potentially business trips that I would would make for my business. Um, and so it was just planting seeds all mm. along the way. And it just got him again, deal by deal, state by state, just more comfortable with this notion of what we were going to do. You know, were all the, the geographies where you were acquiring properties, um, you know, four or now in the case, I guess, maybe three, um, were they all places that y like y'all envisioned could be potential places where you would, um, you know, live in or retire in parts of the year or were some of them like actually just for investment purposes? No, we wanted them all to be places that we wanted to visit because the idea would be it would be the ultimate boondoggle, you know, the leisure trip, right? Business plus leisure where we would we would go to these places and we would love to be there, but it would also be a legitimate tax write-off because we would be doing True. business there, right? I mean, there are just so many lovely places to to be. And there are good investments that that Venn diagram of, 
I want to be there and it's a good investment. <laughs> there were enough places. It wasn't like we were trying to buy a thousand units, right? I mean, we just have 10. So Sure, sure. Yeah. Is there anything that you, you know, looking back would have done differently if you had a do-over? I, you know, I, I think I could have pushed a little bit harder, honestly, um, in the beginning, you know, so once my business had taken off and there were a few years where I had some big years where we were able to, you know, take that money and really, you know, make some real estate moves. I think that I might have pushed a little bit more to say, oh my gosh, look at this and and kind of look at at the kind of the tax impact of it too, because having a W-2 job, I mean, it's, it's just, don't even get me started on that. You should do a show if you haven't already about the whole difference between being a small business owner tax wise versus uh, being, you know, a, a W-2 employee. But I do think I could have maybe pushed a little bit, but part of it too was, again, I just felt like, um, I understood where he was coming from temperamentally. And I really just felt like we could, we could make it work and he could come to it, you know, on his own time. I do think we could have fired earlier. I would Mm. say not that much earlier, maybe three, four, five years earlier, but all things being equal. I mean, we're having such a fabulous time now that I, I, I'm always woe to say I would have changed something because you know, who then knows what else would have changed. That's true. That's true. Was your philosophy always to just live on the rental income or uh, business income and not touch any principal or kind of like the more traditional, like, you know, burn down 4% ish, you know, give or take a year. So I'm really afraid of that whole 4% rule thing. I I feel like if you're going to live off a portfolio of assets, you really want to be a, a money manager. You really want to uh, be be minding kind of that asset allocation and not be so uh, cavalier about buy and hold. I was not willing to be an active money manager. I just don't, as much as I say that I'm interested in personal finance and I follow the markets, I don't, I don't pick individual stocks. I don't have any interest in kind of doing that. And so for me, I wanted to create cash flows that were not dependent on the market. I look at the market. We are invested in the market for sure. I do look at that as um, as a legacy for our family, like something that I would leave to our kids or to charity if, if our kids become financially independent. Um, but I don't I don't rely on it. And I, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself fired if I was relying on a heap of money. I, I really look at it as I want to have income streams that are attached to businesses and I include rentals as a business, you know, that I understand that I can touch, that I can tweak, that I can control. And so that I know that the income is there. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, when you meet other couples in the fire community, do you, do you find that more often than not, both spouses are usually aligned at the beginning, or do you find that often one has to convince the other? You know, I don't always ask my my fire friends who are couples who, you know, if they were always aligned or if they came at it in different ways. My guess is that because people are just different in terms of their risk appetite and also in terms of their point of view around everything from the stock market to real estate to running a business or whatever you define your career income to be, 
that I, I can't imagine that spouses are a hundred percent aligned every step of the way. I think that's just unrealistic. And so for Scott and myself, you know, we we look at fire as is almost this, you know, Chinese menu, choose from column A, choose from column B, you know, so that we look at it as yes, part of it is a paper portfolio, part of it is a real estate portfolio, part of it is our work portfolio where work is defined as projects that we love and that we can make some money off of because we both are lucky that we have skills that lend itself to doing that. And so we can can choose a lot of these things. And then expense management is also there. So you can't necessarily save your way to fire, but you can certainly get there a lot quicker if you aren't a spendthrift. And so we do also, you know, look at that. And part of um, living, you know, making Florida, for example, our primary residence was around, okay, there's like a huge geo-arbitrage play that we can make. And there's a huge expense play here by picking Florida over, say, New York, and by picking Costa Rica as one of our uh, real estate investments. And so all of that was was deliberate and part of the fire plan. Got it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I'd love to, you know, learn a little bit more about how you guys chose Costa Rica for non-US. But before even that, I'm curious, um, you know, to the extent that you have had these conversations with any other fire couples, what are some of the common concerns that, um, you know, you've heard that skeptical spouses have raised uh, to the extent these conversations have come up? Yeah. So a lot of them are similar, I think, to, to what we faced, where the the couples are just not aligned in terms of the career timeline. So, you know, they, they just have a different sense of what they want to be doing. Uh, you know, again, I feel like we could have fired faster if, let's say, Scott had worked for himself and had untethered his income. That's just the math of it, right? Because you you need to have some kind of unlimited upside in order to to be able to amass your assets. And so if you have couples, and so I, I do run into couples where, you know, one person likes the job that they have, but it might not be a job that has any upside, right? It might just be a, a, a salary job without any bonus, without any equity participation. And so that couple has to work out, okay, then the, is the other person going to be the one that swings for the fences? And, and are they in a position to be able to do that? And is that necessarily the, the fair distribution of every couple is going to come up with a different thing? But but just because of the nature of, I guess, living and, and growing up in New York and having our careers in New York, we run into a lot of dual career couples. And so a lot of the fire conflict, if you will, is around just kind of career management, right? And who's going to be be doing what? It's less around, I find, expense management just because New York is so ex- expensive. I mean, like you're not going to be clipping coupons on your way to fire in a place like New York. Um, and in terms of investments, I mean, and this is probably just because me, I am not, again, a stock picker or an active money manager in that way. I don't typically talk to my friends or my couple friends or my fire friends about investment decisions, right? Mm. Because it's it's usually around career decisions or mm. business decisions as opposed to that stock or, you know, I don't know, emerging markets or value versus growth. Like, no. Got it. 
What's your best advice at the end of the day for people who are struggling with how to get their spouse on board with the idea of retiring early? You know, I, I mean, I, I'll just share the things that, that worked for me. You know, I worked on myself first and I made sure that I maximized that if I said that I was committed to fire, that I was doing the things that would get at least me to fire, right? So that I could lead by example, so that I wasn't somehow using my spouse, honestly, as an excuse to not kind of do some of the things that I should be doing. And so I think that if you take care of yourself, then you'll be busy enough for a little bit. I think that if you enroll your spouse in the things that they're actually interested in, you might not have to convince them. So again, so for, for my spouse, it was, it was running the numbers on the investments so that he could see in his own time and in his own way how things compound and, and just kind of learn about that and get interested in that. Um, thinking about like what he was interested in on the real estate side and giving him those things to do so that, again, he could get more interested, right, in all of the other things. Um, and then the business stuff, yeah, I mean, it came with time. I mean, it came with, again, seeing the things that were working on my side and just, you know, it, uh, the lack of, of pressure. I mean, that being said, I, I think we could have fired earlier, a few years earlier, maybe if I'd pushed a little bit more. So that might be something that you you consider to have more conversations than I did. Maybe I was a little bit too passive, um, but I think 46 that's okay with me. Like we're super, super happy with how it turned out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm curious to, um, you know, get your, get your take. Um, most people, if you ask them just other things being equal, would you like to retire early? That kind of seems like a no brainer. Well, yeah, I would like to do that. Um, in your husband's case, there were actually things that you could sort of task him with that he enjoyed. It sounds like running the numbers, uh, scoping out real estate, things like this. And that those actions could help him, um, I guess, have a vested stake and eventually sort of see the benefits. I'm curious how you would, like what you would say to um, the husband and wife couple where one spouse is the more risk-taking, but whose job, like let's say both of them are, you know, kind of in, in uh, for lack of a better word, type A type of careers, but the one spouse who is more risk averse and is interested in this also happens to be in the job that itself has more of that, I guess, equity or bonus upside. Um, like basically the entire profile uh, of somebody who has the uh, both the upside and the desire is all concentrated in one spouse. And the other spouse is, you know, working a perfectly fine W-2 job, pays well, and actually really doesn't have so much interest uh, in like, there's not like tasks that you could give them to sort of um, help them have a vested stake. They are perfectly happy working that job until, you know, they retire at social security age. Uh, and so like, it's kind of harder for them to engage them along the way for this type of couple. Uh, do you have like, what would you say to this type of couple? Yeah. So Here's the thing. I, I think that it is very hard to convince someone not to do something. So in your example, it's not to work, right? And and for me, I would say that, and I, I tell this to folks, so my line of work is, is HR and is career coaching. And I, I talk about the pull versus the push, 
with my career coaching clients who are, are thinking about a career decision. And the push decision is, I don't want this job. I want to quit. I, I'm undervalued. I'm underpaid. I'm overworked. Like not, 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 right? Like it's, it's the push, right? I'm pushed out of my job for a reason. And the pull is, I want to work at that job. I want to work for that company. I want to be in that industry. This is the mission. I want to do this, right? It is very difficult to get excited about a push scenario. And so when I talked about Scott really turning the corner and, and seeing fire and getting excited about fire, it actually wasn't fire. It was travel, right? It was location independence. It was the things that fire brings. And so I think that's really the message, regardless of whether it's a risk averse or uh, you know, a risk-taking spouse, if it's a high-earning spouse or, you know, like no upside spouse, like whatever it is, I think you need to find whatever the pull scenario is for them. And frankly, if the person is happy at their job, you know, financial independence it means that you can stay at your job forever, right? Like it means that you could actually continue that job and and that's okay. But it just also means that, what whatever happens if that job should go away, um, Enron, Lehman Brothers, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of these examples, uh, Madoff, right? Like, and, and all of the companies that were built around Madoff's investments, right? Like your job can go away so, so, so quickly or the pandemic, for example, right? And, and so really financial independence isn't about whether or not you're working at that job. It's about all these other things. And so maybe that's the conversation that I would have with, with that couple is that I would say like, okay, you know, financial independence means what? And so for the spouse that wants to work, it, it's sure, you, absolutely you could work, but it just means that you don't have to. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair point. Um, okay, um, I'd love to understand also a little bit about like, kind of your own fire journey. Um, some really tactical things. How did you guys think about healthcare and health insurance? Since you're you know still young, too young for Medicare, what was your strategy on this? Yeah, we don't have a strategy. We buy it. I mean, we buy it off of the exchange. I did a lot of research around it costing out different plans if I were a small business that had employees. What's tricky with the with the Affordable Care Act is that a lot of insurers got out of insuring solopreneurs. You know, it's very hard to get business, uh, medical insurance attached to your business unless you have employees. And so you really are beholden to the exchange. So I just made sure that we were okay with buying on the exchange and that we were willing to pay for it. It is something that is very expensive. We were paying over $3,000 a month Holy when we crap, were in wow. New York. We are still paying over $1,500 uh, in Florida, and, and that's just for the two of us. And mm. so Florida is actually not that much cheaper uh, than New York. And that that still means that we have a ton of co-pays and, and things that we have to pay out of pocket. I mean, health insurance is just broken, honestly, for the entire U.S. And so- it is something that you have to take very seriously. I priced that into all of my calculations, mm -hmm. right? So it is the single highest line item, higher than our market, like our housing payment, our car pay, everything. Like it is, it is the highest line item by far. Was part of the strategy, I have talked to other couples where part of the strategy actually was realizing that 
you can get good, very good, affordable, quality healthcare, even if you pay cash out of pocket at most other places outside of the US. And so for a lot of routine things, people just like go abroad. Was that ever part of your strategy? I definitely have it in my back pocket. I do have bookmarked some sites on medical tourism. We've, we haven't gone that route, but having had uh, dental implant work done, which I, I did when I had dental insurance through a traditional corporate job, but I, I know how much that costs. I would probably do it abroad if I had to do it again. Um, so there are certain things that I would probably go abroad for. But for us, it was more about just going into it eyes wide open and saying, okay, if you know we are at this point, we're turning 50 this year, I'm turning 50 this year, Scott is already 50. But um, so we have 15 more years till Medicare if there is indeed Medicare. And so I know like we have to pay X amount, right? Up until for the next 15 years. Um, and I just made peace with that uh, because I'm not going to assume that the insurance system is going to be fixed. I am not a, um, what are those health sharing ministries? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I stay away from those things. I think, you know, they, they aren't really insurance. And so uh, I'm, even though supposedly you you can get back onto the exchange and there's no pre-existing condition piece of it, I'm just too worried that that might become a factor. And so I never want to be off of medical insurance. I oh, I never want there to be a gap. So I'm just willing to pay. Sometimes it's $36,000 a year, sometimes $20,000. I mean, it's a big number. That's, that's, yeah. very, resp that's very responsible philosophy, I think. Um, so at this point, you still have, you know, you still have like different income streams, obviously you have 10 properties. Are, are you still very actively running your consulting business um, at this point or have you dialed back at all? Yeah. So we dialed back in 2019 when our youngest went to college and we did some travel and then 2020 uh, came around and it was the pandemic and we canceled half a dozen trips and basically hunkered down and so I then worked. I mean, that was that that's the thing. It's like I actually love what I do. And so I just dialed that back up. Now that it looks like some travel is opening up, I'm gonna dial that back down. But honestly, I you know, the pandemic has really thrown a, a curveball into it. Um, I I work what I consider full-time, not New York full-time hours, but probably for Florida full-time hours. I mean, I, I would probably say if I, I added up everything that I do, it's it's a 30 to 40 hour week. Um, I would like that to be less if there were places to go. Hmm. But, you know, we, um, you know, travel was our thing. That was going to be our, our thing that we were going to do. And now that that has taken a back seat, um, I just have, I'm not baking sourdough bread with my free time. So I'm, I'm just doing projects. Sure, sure. Um, okay, got it. So, and, and I'm also curious, like for your rental real estate, like how many do you treat as like, you know, long-term rental versus Airbnb kind of transient rental? Um, and yeah, so how do you think about the differences between those? We are buy and hold long-term rental people. It's just a more manageable cash flow. We did buy in Costa Rica. Those are Airbnb mm -hmm. rentals. We have three properties there and Costa Rica you know, solved a lot of issues for us. So we wanted some international diversification. It fit in with our buy someplace where you'd love to be. And so we love to, to visit there for vacation. It also honestly was what I called the nuclear option in terms of healthcare mm -hmm. for us. They have universal healthcare and they have good healthcare. And so I felt like 
if something ever happened and all of a sudden it went from 36,000 to 72,000 to 104, you know, like, I don't know if there was hyperinflation on the, on the healthcare premium, you know, Costa Rica was always there. So it, it solved a lot of issues for us and it made more sense to do these as vacation rentals. And so that's what we, we did, but it's vacation rentals have a much lower um, ROI and, and Mm. they're much more labor intensive. And so I, you know, for me personally, I'm not as, as interested in them. I wouldn't build up a vacation rental portfolio. Mm. I think people who enjoy that kind of stuff more, they might feel differently, but, but for us, the passive income for sure is more like long-term real estate. Got it. Yeah. I was actually curious. I was going to ask like how, like how do you manage the Airbnbs remotely? Because they they are more labor intensive. Do you have like a well honed process now? And how how did that? How did you create that? We have property managers for all of our properties. <laughs> so oh, I see. and 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 you pay for that for sure, right? And that's that's factored into the business model. But but real estate is only a passive game if you have people working on it, right? <laughs> otherwise, you're, otherwise, you're working on it. So my consulting income, I don't consider passive income, I consider mm-hmm. it, I call it work as play, in the sense that I love my projects, but I'm working for sure. I, mean, I guess the big thing is that one's location independent. Uh, right. And so anywhere. I can, I can flex it and I can. And, and, and so it works for me. But it is work. It is, it is active income there. There's nothing passive about it. The only passive income that's related to my consulting business are things like royalties from my books or, or ad income from our websites. Those things are truly passive. So for real estate, um, it's, it's passive in the sense that we have property managers. We are still managing the managers. So, Mm -hmm. so there is still active income. We're still scouting out different properties if we were to buy additional properties you know that's the kind of stuff that that we would be doing so there's part of it that's still still active i see and like for your property managers i assume you like you know pay them a monthly fee or a percentage or something like that but they take care of like all of the screening the cleaning the key handoffs and all that stuff for you absolutely and even for the long-term rentals we have property managers who are uh, in charge of the the tenant turnover, the releasing, um, and then any repairs they're coordinating that, although we'll get involved, you know, in potentially looking at what the different bids are for any work that needs to be done. And then of course, you know, staying on top of the property managers and things sure. like that. Um, and then lastly, I'm just curious, you know, for the Airbnb property managers, were these folks who like were part of property management companies where they already like had a specialty in Airbnb or did you have to train them on how to do Airbnb? No, they were experienced property managers because we are not. We're not experienced vacation rental managers. We are not experienced in Costa Rica. We don't speak Spanish. Mm. So you can see that we would not be great at, at telling them what to do. Mm. So part of also of buying where we bought was that we, we could have a team in place that, that when we were scouting, we met people that we were confident, like, okay, I would put an investment in their hands. We looked at some other, we considered some other countries and we, um, we just didn't have a team on the ground or there were other reasons. So Costa Rica ticked off a lot of boxes for us. And one of them was that we would have a team. For sure. Got it. Yeah. I was actually curious how you guys 
eventually coalesced around Costa Rica. There's, you know, that, all the countries in the world, and it sounds like you don't speak Spanish anyway. So what made you decide on Costa Rica, you know, over other places? Yeah. So I have a thing where I look at the best places to retire. I mean, that's just a starting point for me because it's one of these things where I feel like retirement destinations are good live work destinations and they're good leisure travel destinations. And the population is just getting older. I, you know, I'm really thinking about the 10,000 people turning age 60 every single day. And the fact that in a few years, 20% of the US population is going to be over 65. So I'm always looking at these retirement destination lists. And that's actually how I started looking at international destinations that, um, Fire is the least of the worries of the U.S. retirement population. I mean, there are people who cannot afford to retire, you know, at any age. And so and healthcare is a big part of it and just savings and, and all of that is a big part of it. So I started thinking geo arbitrage of retiring abroad is going to be a thing out of necessity. And so we started just thinking about where would people go? Costa Rica has been on the radar for years uh, at this point. And one could argue that the easy money to be made in Costa Rica has already been made. We, we bought when it was already on people's radars, but that's how we like to buy. We don't need to make a killing. We like to buy when it's already proven to be a destination. So Asheville was already proven to be a good destination, Jacksonville and, and Costa Rica. And that's, that's how we picked it. Got it. So it sounds like, like rental property potential was actually one of the you know, explicit criteria on your sort of mental checklist of places you were evaluating? For sure, because we needed the place to carry itself. Mm. Uh, we were not willing to invest in a property in the hopes that maybe someday, one day, it would return uh, money for us, that we, we need to buy into something where there would absolutely be positive cash flow so that our our holding costs, essentially, our holding time could be infinite, right? We would never have to make a decision, uh, you know, under duress because real estate is too difficult for that. It's a liquid. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get, I guess I get that for why, why you would choose a place like Costa Rica to invest. And I'm also just curious. Um, it sounds like, you know, being there yourself as part of, you know, spending your retirement in, in itself, it was like a desirable location. And, um, like, what were some of the other factors that were Im, uh, important to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I checked them all off. You know, I wrote a, a whole blog about it on Costa Rica Fire. But it's, you know, I'm looking at things like the government stability. I'm looking at currency risk. I'm looking at their economy, their standalone economy, because I'm looking at the inter international destination as a standalone piece. Hmm. I, I was looking for our first purchase. I was also looking for that nuclear option, like I said, for healthcare. And so that was that was definitely a piece of it that if if we had to leave, where could we go that we would be okay living, that we could have the healthcare, that we would feel safe, etc. Um, and so again, like Costa Rica checked off a lot of these boxes. I mean, we, we looked at, um, we thought about Panama, Portugal, the Philippines, Thailand. So there are a lot of places I feel like that can, can check off boxes, but, um, but Costa Rica had them, had them all. Uh, mm -hmm. It came down to, for us, you know, we loved going to the Philippines. We, we went there three times. I'm Filipino. I've 
born here, but Filipino by, by ancestry. And so we're very, very comfortable there. But when you compare and you look at kind of the investment potential, hmm. currency risk really high, um, economy not very stable, government not very stable, healthcare hmm. situation not very good. You know, so so the Philippines was a place that we just loved, but it wasn't an investment, right? And so I'll visit there and then I'll invest in Costa Rica. Yeah, makes sense. When you go there, do you just stay in your own properties or do you like rent elsewhere? No, we stay, we we bought a property uh, free and clear so that we could stay there and then rent it out when we're not there. But the other two properties we bought through our retirement account. So we can't mm. use those personally. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, well, that that's pretty much all I had. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with you, uh, Caroline. It's like, you know, a little bit different than the normal episodes I do, but I think is a, you know, really important topic and thinking about how you, um, you know, come to grips with, you know, going all in on, on location independence or financial independence, early retirement with your spouse. Where can listeners find out more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, so Costa Rica Fire is our site. And I think that's the the best place to, to find out about why Costa Rica for us, you know, what other countries we looked at, that checklist that I mentioned of, of what we look at uh, when deciding on investing in a property. And, you know, I really write about kind of the financial issues that that come to the forefront for us. So things that we're thinking about now that the pandemic has happened, you know, alternative investments that we are considering, business ideas that we're considering. And we write about things that we look at and ultimately decide not to do, you know, not because we're recommending that someone make the same decision, but just so that people can kind of see, you know, these are the things that we weighed and this is how it it all worked out for us. And yeah, and we even have a course on that site called Making Fire Possible, which talks about a lot of the things that I mentioned, the expense management issue and the work is play issue and, you know, paper, portfolio, real estate, geo arbitrage, um, because I think there are just so many different ways to fire. All right. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me again. And, um, you know, maybe maybe see you on the road one of these days. <laughs> for sure. Cheers. Take care. All right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.